Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training in Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Crystal, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care program, Living with Acute Myelogenous Leukemia, or AML, and uh, we are delighted to offer this program. It's such an important one. Uh, we know that many of you really want to get all this information that we're going to provide for you today, and uh, today's program is supported by AbbVie, um, Agios and a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for the support of the program. Now, we have a lot of you on the program today. There are over 203 participants on the call today who come from all of the United States, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, New Zealand, Switzerland, and Turkey. So it's a, really a bit of a global call as well, and it's a credit to all of you that you're choosing to spend this next hour with us. Now, we have the most wonderful faculty, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Fahad Ravandi Kashani. And Dr. Ravandi is the Janice and Stephen A. Lasher Professor of Medicine, Chief Section of, of Department Therapeutics, Department of Leukemia, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Ravandi is going to be addressing overview of acute myelogenous leukemia, AML, in the context of COVID-19 current treatment approaches, including precision medicine and targeted treatments, and transplantation as a treatment option for AML. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ravandi. Um, good afternoon, and thank you, Dr. Mesner, and uh, good afternoon to everyone who's on the call. Uh, so I was given the task of going uh, over acute myeloid leukemia in a very short period, and uh, uh, for uh, people on the call, of course, this uh, many of you unfortunately know that this is an acute leukemia, and it is the, actually the most common acute leukemia, accounting uh, for about uh, uh, 20,000 new cases in the United States. Over the last uh, two or three decades, uh, science and understanding biology of the disease has progressed significantly, and so we are now... Uh, understanding the mechanisms that uh, lead to the development of this disease in uh, uh, at least in some patients uh, and we have also discovered uh, a number of uh, chromosome and gene abnormalities that uh, occur within the specific leukemia cells that result in uh, the uh, development of the disease of course, there are a number of environmental factors that have been described to be associated with uh, developing this uh, leukemia, including um, uh, some toxins and uh, uh, benzene. Uh, but uh, in general, uh, most of our patients, we don't have a specific reason why uh, they develop. There is an exception of patients who have had cancer therapy for other cancers, and unfortunately, uh, a certain proportion of patients who uh, are cured from other cancers and have had prior chemotherapy and radiation for their other cancers uh, develop um, leukemias, including AML. 
Uh, now, uh, in the context of COVID-19, uh, the treatment of uh, AML has uh, historically been uh, with the use of uh, what we call conventional chemotherapy agents. And these are, um, for a lack of a better term, really poisons that um, uh, are able to poison the leukemia cells and hopefully not to a dramatic extent the normal cells uh, and they uh, essentially remove the leukemia cells and uh, produce what we like to see which is a what we call complete remission and that means that uh, by uh, standard techniques uh, pathologists and the leukemia physicians aren't any uh, longer able to see the leukemia cells in the blood or bone marrow of the patient they have treated. Now, as I mentioned, the standard treatment has been chemotherapy agents, and this has been with us for the last several decades and continues to be a major role, uh, to have a major role in uh, treating acute leukemias and AML. Uh, now, historically, in all the patients, uh, we have had trouble with this because uh, uh, chemotherapy agents and their side effects are generally tolerable in the younger patients, but not so much in the older patients. So, for the past two decades, we have been trying to uh, move away uh, as much as we can from chemotherapy and uh, the understanding the molecular uh, causes of leukemia has helped us because we have now developed uh, what we call target-specific uh, agents, and my colleagues, Dr. Pearl and Dr. Stein, I'm sure will go over a lot of this, and these have been uh, effective and relatively non-toxic. But uh, unfortunately, even with these target-specific agents, uh, we still rely on chemotherapy, and we are incorporating them into the chemotherapy strategies and not replacing the chemotherapy strategies with them. In the older population, we have moved away from chemotherapy uh, to what uh, we have been calling uh, hypomethylating agents, and these are uh, really two uh, approved drugs, uh, azacitidine, or otherwise known as Vedaza, or Decidabine, uh, which uh, have been used uh, for the last two decades, not highly effectively to treat older and unfit patients uh, who are not fit for chemotherapy uh, because of the potential side effects of chemotherapy. And uh, more recently, uh, about uh, five years ago, uh, an agent uh, or a drug called venetoclax uh, was uh, uh, developed uh, initially for another disease, CLL, but it was shown uh, by investigators in uh, my group uh, to be useful and was added to these uh, hypomethylating agents. And uh, actually, we now have a result of a large trial that uh, clearly shows that this strategy of adding uh, azacitidine to uh, venetoclax is superior to the, uh, the, the strategy that we've been using, uh, which is azacitidine alone. And this is a, a great uh, step forward in older, unfit patients because 
clearly, we now have at least a uh, uh, significantly effective uh, strategy that improves survival of patients uh, quite significantly. Uh, now, uh, there are, uh, in terms of COVID-19, um, uh, our group still believes that uh, we cannot uh, do away from uh, induction chemotherapy in the younger patients, and I would strongly advocate that mainly because we all know that the best time to treat AML is the first time. Um, uh, patients, their best shot at getting rid of the leukemia and being cured from leukemia is their first attempt. Because unfortunately, if the leukemia doesn't respond or relapses, uh, treatment strategies are uh, much less uh, effective and the likelihood of achieving a cure is much, much lower. So we are not shying away from chemotherapy, even the COVID time now, I don't know what's happening in New York or Pennsylvania, but uh, you know we still use chemotherapy in the younger patients. Um, we do have uh, what we call a protected environment that uh, we hospitalize patients in for the entire period of uh, treatment. And uh, uh, with this approach, as uh, I mentioned earlier to you, Dr. Messner, we have not had any major uh, problems with COVID-19. The patients uh, historically, patients with leukemia historically know that uh, you have to be extremely careful about any infections. Now remember, COVID-19 is only a few months old, but we have had all kinds of infections, bacteria and viruses that could be lethal to a leukemia patient. So. Uh, Obviously, uh, uh, the training of the patients has been there even before COVID-19, but I think everyone is a lot more cautious these days in terms of ensuring that the patients uh, are um, uh, not going to be infected by COVID-19, including the patients. In the older population, the combination that I mentioned, the combination of uh, azacitidine and venetoclax, uh, has been approved by the FDA actually uh, now for a couple of years, but now it's uh, the, now uh, there is an absolute proof for its superiority. It is less toxic in terms of causing uh, uh, immunosuppression or suppressing the immune system of the patient, but still uh, we do still treat our older patients with this regimen in the hospital and in the protective environment for their first course. Now, obviously with the subsequent courses, you still have some degree of suppression of your immune system. And then again, where that's where we rely on the patients and relatives to be extremely cautious about the risks of infection. Uh, with this uh, regimen of uh, azacitidine and venetoclax, um, we continue the therapy for a long time. You know, I have a patient that's uh, receiving uh, his fourth year of therapy. Um, and so once the patient is in remission and doing well, uh, the immune system is not as suppressed, but I still uh, highly recommend to my patients to remain uh, extremely vigilant and very cautious about risks of infections, any infection, and COVID-19. Um, so in terms of uh, transplantation, um, this continues to remain an important tool in treatment uh, of AML. 
Um, unfortunately, even with the new agents and uh, new strategies, uh, there are some subsets of AML that uh, uh, whatever we are giving uh, as leukemia doctors are not going to cure them. And so there is a specific subset of AML patients that we always refer to uh, our transplant colleagues to undergo an allogeneic stem cell transplant in first remission. Uh, of course, this is also going to be uh, fraught with uh, risk during these COVID times, especially. Uh, so um, um, there has been, uh, I think, uh, if we had a significant spike uh, that the New York uh, hospitals had, we probably would have uh, delayed transplant uh, for some patients and continued with uh, maintenance uh, strategies, but um, um, we have so far, as I mentioned, been relatively luckier in uh, Houston, Texas. So, uh, uh, in general, if a patient needed a transplant, we have proceeded with that, and so far we have not had any major problems. Um, there, uh, unfortunately, for some subsets of patients, there is no substitution uh, for uh, transplant. There are um, all the patients that, um, for one reason or another, may not be eligible for transplant, and there is another large uh, study that was reported a few months ago using an oral version of uh, azacitidine, uh, that's the same drug that I mentioned, for maintenance therapy in patients who have had uh, some chemotherapy and do not uh, or are not eligible for transplant. And uh, this drug is unfortunately not yet approved, but that can provide in the future a potential option for uh, maintenance after initial treatment uh, for the patients and the physicians. Um, so I think uh, I have uh, covered uh, what I had been assigned to cover, unless Dr. Messner feels that I need to say anything else. Outstanding, Dr. Avanti. You covered everything beautifully. Um, excellent presentation, really wonderfully setting the stage for this program and the whole program itself. And so um, thank you so much for, um, for this wonderful information. And um, so thank you. And our, our next speaker, so um, our, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Alexander Pearl. Dr. Pearl is Associate Professor of Medicine, Leukemia Program, Division of Hematology, Oncology, University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Pearl will be addressing new therapies, symptoms, side effect, and pain management tips, and key questions to ask your healthcare team in telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It is now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Pearl. Thank you, Carolyn. I, I appreciate the invitation to speak today. Um, so I, I'll just try to build on things that Dr. Ravani had just mentioned uh, in terms of the advances that are happening in AML, and a, a number of things have really gotten better in the last few years. One of the most exciting things has been that there are new drugs that treat AML that are both effective and, in general, are less toxicity than what we used to use in the olden days, where we really were limited by the types of agents we could treat our patients with uh, as standard therapies. You know, perhaps on clinical trials, we had lower-intensity drugs, 
but nothing had been proven to work better than standard therapy. Well, now we have actually a number of different options for patients, and we can fit the right therapy for, the, for each patient, whether that's a decision between using a highly intensive induction chemotherapy or a lower intensity therapy, if that's more appropriate for the patient. The, the good news is it's not like by choosing a less intensive option, you're necessarily choosing something that's second best. We're choosing what's best for the patient by matching their tolerability of one therapy versus another. And at the end of the day, the outcomes are actually getting better and better for each of these outcomes, uh, each of these treatment strategies. And I think as we look at how we're helping our patients, more and more patients are benefiting from therapy. And in fewer and fewer patients are we saying we would just give supportive care only. We wouldn't actually treat the leukemia. Virtually everyone who comes into my office, we give active treatment with the goal of getting them into remission and the hopes that once in remission, they will feel considerably better. Uh, and the likelihood of, of achieving that goal is actually better now than it ever has been in the past. So another change that's happened in our approach, particularly for the lower intensity therapies, is the duration of therapy. Uh, as Dr. Ravani mentioned with venetoclax and azacitidine, he, he said that he had a patient who's been on therapy continuously for four years and remains in remission. So we're seeing those kinds of outcomes more and more where patients see a benefit from very prolonged therapy but hopefully also therapy that will not slow them down in terms of their daily activities. And we certainly can't do that for the highly intensive therapies, which have to be given over a very short course and require prolonged hospitalization. It wouldn't be reasonable to say, well, move into the hospital for the next four years, and we hope you're feeling fine after that. Um, for patients getting highly intensive therapy, they do still require prolonged hospitalization. But for more patients who are getting even intensive therapy, if they don't go on to bone marrow transplant, there's interest in using lower intensity maintenance drugs thereafter. And as you mentioned, uh, oral formulations of the hypomethylating agent azacitidine have been shown to improve the survival of patients who receive prolonged courses of that drug after completing chemotherapy. And so while that's not currently approved in the U.S., it's likely that will be uh, reviewed within the next year by the FDA, and we hope that will become a standard therapy. The other uh, change that we've seen in our, in our armamentarium have been new agents, of which there's not been a new drug approved in the year 2019 or 2020 thus far, um, but there were eight drugs approved between 2017 and 2018. And because that's the case, we have a lot more drugs to choose from. And many of these are drugs that actually target biological processes in the leukemia, and sometimes those biological processes are predicted by the presence of mutations we can test for. The two most uh, commonly used targeted therapies are drugs that target mutations in a gene called IDH or a gene called FLT3. There's actually two different kinds of IDH mutations, IDH1 and IDH2, but that, the, the types of drugs that we're using are very similar, and I'm going to refer to those drugs in combination as the IDH inhibitors, even though there's a specific drug for each different mutation. Um, with these agents, as single agents, we're, we're seeing very low toxicity in terms of side effects from these drugs, and yet uh, a rather good response rate in patients who have advanced leukemia, meaning they've been treated with prior chemotherapy, and for one reason or another, the leukemia is still active. Either it didn't respond to the frontline therapy, or it responded and then grew again, and that's where these drugs were first approved. And actually, the, the IDH inhibitor, uh, ivocidinib, IDH1 inhibitor, is even approved for patients for whom intensive therapy is not uh, an appropriate choice. So patients might receive that as a first-line agent in some cases. But mostly these drugs are being used um, either as an add-on to standard therapy, um, which at present is investigational for the drugs that are approved, um, or they're used as single agents um, 
in, in patients who have either relapsed or refractory disease, meaning they haven't responded appropriately to frontline therapy or they responded and then the disease grew back. And the, the data thus far have actually shown when we compare the targeted therapies to standard therapy, at least with the example of FLT3 inhibitors, the outcomes have actually been better with targeted agents. We actually saw the, the results from two randomized trials looking at FLT3 inhibitor therapy as a single agent compared to standard chemotherapy. Um, and both response rates and survival was better with the FLT3 inhibitor than with standard chemotherapy. So I think we're pretty convinced that that's the right thing to do in this setting. What we don't know is whether a single drug or whether multiple drugs should be used, and that's something we're still testing in clinical trials. There have been trials combining novel agents, one with another. There have been trials combining standard chemotherapy drugs and novel agents. And we're still, I think the jury is still out there in terms of what's the best approach. And so this is a reason to consider clinical trials because it's possible that it's important that we sequence these drugs one after another, or it may be more important to combine them together. We're still not convinced what the best approach is, which is why when trials are available, we really encourage our patients to participate. So in terms of other therapies, there's a lot of buzz about drugs that target uh, leukemia via the effects of the immune system. That's a standard way to approach cancer therapy in a number of different cancer types. It's standard therapy for lung cancer, for kidney cancer, for any number of different cancers. It's not yet standard to do this in leukemia with the exception of bone marrow transplant, which itself is an immune-based therapy in that when we do a bone marrow transplant, we not only transplant the bone marrow cells, but also the immune system that they populate. And so we know that immune system actually can attack the leukemia in ways that chemotherapy can't. And that's important for how that uh, modality can cure patients that we don't think would have as good a likelihood of being cured with chemotherapy alone. So there's a lot of interest in can we harness the immune system to attack leukemia? And there's quite a bit of buzz about drugs such as uh, 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 antibody therapies, in particular antibody therapies that activate T cells. That's a standard approach for certain kinds of leukemias, like ALL, where a drug called blinitumumab is very effective. There are many clinical trials using a similar approach and not yet an approved drug that uses that approach to activate T cells to attack leukemia cells based on antibody recognition of those cells. But there is also a lot of interest in using your own uh, T cells to activate and uh, attack the leukemia cells, something called CAR T cell therapy. That, while approved for certain pediatric leukemias, is not yet a standard therapy in AML. There's a lot of clinical trial interest in this, and we think it's a very exciting technology, but it's not yet a standard therapy yet. We hope that's going to be something that moves forward very soon. There also are interests in using antibodies alone to uh, interact with uh, what, what are called immune checkpoints. And so that's a standard treatment for many tumors of solid organs, as I mentioned before, it's not yet a standard therapy in leukemia, and we're not quite sure what the best approach is, whether we should use the same targets that are used in solid, organ, uh, solid cancers, such as PD-1 or PD-L1, um, or whether we should be looking at other checkpoints. There's a very uh, interesting drug that targets uh, an immune checkpoint called CD-47. This drug is called Magrolimab, and CD-47 is thought to hold back the function of cells called macrophages, it works sort of like garbage collectors of the immune system. They chew up cells that are diseased. And by blocking CD47, we might be able to activate the, the macrophages to chew up leukemia cells. And again, that, that's an investigational approach. It's not approved just yet. So I'm going to move on to uh, the topic of telehealth, which I think is on many people's uh, minds right now. 
it's certainly a, a new way to see the doctor to not actually be in the doctor's office. And I think getting used to receiving therapy for as serious a disease as AML with a telephone or with a video link is it, something that people need a little bit of time to get used to, but it certainly has become the new normal for many of our patients. I would throw out there, however, that it's important to still try to see the doctor in person when you're on active therapy if that's encouraged by your uh, physician center. We've tried to keep patients on in-person, in-office visits when they're getting active therapy and only really move to telehealth when they're doing well after those therapies have done their job or if they're on a low-intensity therapy or have a great distance to cover to see us. So we like the fact that telehealth gives us access to people who have difficulty getting to us. I did a telehealth with a patient who drives two hours to come to our office just yesterday, and it was a real godsend to be able to reach out to him and not have him spend four hours in the car coming to see me. Um, but I think if you're somebody actively getting therapy who really needs to be monitored closely, especially if they're still getting transfusions and getting supportive medicines, you probably do need to come in and recognize that your physician team is going to be doing everything they can to keep you safe when you come into the office to make sure your risk of perhaps picking up COVID from that process is as low as possible. In terms of what we can do to uh, make telehealth a more useful uh, uh, experience for the patient, have your questions ready for the doctor before you get on the telehealth visit. Recognize that there can be technical issues both on your end and also on the physician's end. We're certainly still teasing this out as we're going forward. Um, if you can test all of your video links before you get on the, the call, it makes for a more productive call. Um, and the areas where we've seen bottlenecks that you should be paying attention to are if you forget to ask your questions before you get off the call, if you have medication refills you need to make sure get addressed in the call, and if you need lab follow-ups or appointment follow-ups, make sure those questions are addressed before you uh, uh, lose contact. Um, the kind of planning for the visit before the visit does a lot in terms of making sure you stay on, on target for all of your needs. Um, and if you need something after the visit, don't hesitate to reach out. I think the physician and, and uh, treatment teams are very, very much trying to stay in touch with you, and we just recognize all the challenges that everybody has. In particular, this relates to symptom management and, and, and supportive care during therapy. Um, so this is something that it's very important to bring up when you're on uh, telehealth. And one advantage of telehealth visits is that we don't wear masks on telehealth, and you can bring all your caregivers. I know in our facility, we don't have visitors in the hospital for inpatients, and even for the, the clinic visits, we're very very restrictive in terms of who can come in and see the, the care team. So this gives you an opportunity to have everybody involved hear more about what's going on with your care. So bring those people into those visits. When you're finding out about symptom management, um, try to be an advocate for your care, and if you have somebody who can speak better for you, to advocate for you, bring them into the conversation. Um, I, I think there's a lot of things that we can do to make patients more uh, 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 comfortable during their therapy, recognizing there's nothing easy about leukemia therapy. What we're trying to do is make what's hard an easier process. Fatigue is a very common side effect. I do recommend that patients get exercise regularly if they're up to it. Um, certainly making sure your hemoglobin's in a range that you can get up and get out of the house and get a little bit of exercise is a good thing. I think even though we're practicing social distancing and people are trying to stay away from other people, if you get out and wear a mask and get around, it really makes a world of difference in terms of your outlook. Um, be aware of supportive medicines that are there trying to help you but actually are sedating. These include medicines that target nausea or medicines that are there for itching or rashes. can include antihistamines. So see whether there are, are uh, low, sedate, low sedating medicines that you can use for those purposes. 
In terms of pain management, good oral hygiene is probably the most important thing here. Often my patients don't have a lot of pain with the exception of mucositis pain. And good oral hygiene includes rinsing with salt water on a daily basis, making sure you're not using uh, uh, floss if your platelets are low um, to avoid having unexpected bleeding. Um, be careful about mouthwashes that might cause burning if they're uh, containing alcohol or eating foods that are acidic or uh, in extremes of temperature. Um, generally, bland food is about a lot better tolerated and things that aren't that acidic, so stay away from citrus perhaps. Um, and with any new medicine, try a little bit uh, before you really dive in in terms of a supported medicine for your mouth because some are better tolerated than others. In particular, try to avoid using uh, uh, a mouthwash with lidocaine so you don't wind up biting your tongue because that can certainly be uncomfortable. Um, with respect to nausea, I, I find patients often are pleasantly surprised that their therapies aren't as nauseating as they might have expected, but it's not to say that this never happens. Um, to stay ahead of nausea is probably the best way to prevent it rather than treat it, and avoid things that are triggers for you, whether that's perfumes, whether that's smells, whether that's particular meals. Kind of plan around your meals, and if you need nausea medicines, take them before you're in an environment where you might need, uh, need them afterwards. Lastly, don't forget, in terms of quality of life, the important things for you. Keep up with your hobbies. Keep up with your contacts. Keep up with the things that are important milestones for you. And try to set yourself little goals that you can achieve um, so that you can kind of tick the boxes in terms of things that are most important for you. It's easy to get lost in your therapy in terms of, I used to do the following things. See how many of those things you can keep up while you're in therapy. I think you'll be surprised at how you tolerate it. Um, and with that, I've got to turn back to Carolyn, and I hope I've covered everything that uh, uh, she wanted on this, on this call. Oh, excellent, Dr. Pearl. That was really outstanding. And really, um, you presented so many new options for people, and also just the use of these the telehealth, telemedicine appointments, really um, uh, how important they are in communicating with the healthcare team at this time. So thank you so much. Um, and I, I'm sure there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Eitan Stein. Dr. Stein is a hematologic oncologist, clinical trialist, acute myeloid leukemia, leukemia service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Stein is going to be addressing the role of clinical trials, updates on clinical trials, including beat AML master trial, this very important trial for you to hear about if you haven't heard about it already, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including discussion of quality of life concerns in the context of COVID-19. It is my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Stein. Thank you so, so much for um, inviting me to talk on this call. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, clinical trials and take a step back about the importance of clinical trials for patients with acute myeloid leukemia. Um, overall, I think clinical trials are important uh, really for two reasons. And one is from the perspective of the individual patient uh, with the disease, it really gives you access to new drugs and new therapies that may be very, very exciting, but have not yet been approved by uh, the FDA. You know, all the drugs we have now for the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia started out as drugs that were part of clinical trials, and then they became the standard of care. And all the clinical trials that we conduct are done in an effort to either improve the outcomes of patients with acute myeloid leukemia or make it easier in terms of the quality of life um, for those patients who have acute myeloid leukemia. Uh, the clinical trials that we do have all been um, vetted not only by 
local institutional review boards, but they've also been looked at by the Food and Drug Administration. Um, they have very strict rules about uh, who can go on and when you can go on and safety, being sure that nothing, um, uh, nothing uh, bad happens to a patient while they're on a clinical trial. From a societal perspective, you're also participating in something that can help um, make the overall treatment of acute myeloid leukemia much better. And, and the only way we really make progress in the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia is patients are willing um, and able uh, to participate in, in this wide variety of clinical trials. So I do want to talk about, uh, like Dr. Messner said, about a few specific clinical trials and, and why I find them exciting. So, you know, we've learned over the past um, uh, 30 years that, that acute myeloid leukemia, although um, patients have the same constellation of symptoms and the disease presents to uh, the doctor or the patient presents to the doctor in a similar way, We've learned that the underlying genetic factors that cause acute myeloid leukemia can be different. So there are many, many ways to get to a diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia. You could have a mutation in uh, a gene like IDH1 or IDH2, like Dr. Pearl spoke about. You could have a mutation in a different gene called NPM1. You could have um, an abnormality in the chromosomes in your bone marrow that develops that can lead to acute myeloid leukemia. And what we've really started doing is uh, splitting up how we are attacking this disease based on the molecular and chromosomal subset of acute myeloid leukemia that a patient may have. So some examples of that were given by Dr. Pearl earlier, um, where we take patients who have IDH mutations or patients who have put three mutations, and we might treat them with a therapy that specifically targets uh, that specific mutation in IDH1 or IDH2 or FLT3. What the BDAML trial is, and this is a trial that's uh, being run by and sponsored by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, is it's a trial that attempts to really understand before a patient starts treatment, what is the genetic makeup of their acute myeloid leukemia, and then to take that information about the genetic makeup of their acute myeloid leukemia and give them a treatment that is specific for their particular kind of acute myeloid leukemia. So, for example, in a patient who had a mutation in NPM1, they might get a treatment that is specific for patients with NPM1, and similar with other mutations like FLT3 or IDH or other mutations that, that may be out there. I do want to talk about two other clinical trials that I think are very, very exciting for specific subsets of patients with acute myeloid leukemia. So there are some patients with AML who have a mutation in a gene called P53. There is now a drug that's being evaluated that specifically targets the P53 mutation. That's a drug called APR-246. And what the, the company is doing and what the clinical trialists are doing is taking this APR246 and adding it to the backbone that Dr. Ravandi and Dr. Pearl talked about of this combination of azacitidine with venetoclax. So the azacitidine and venetoclax are probably the new standard of care for older patients with acute myeloid leukemia. And the, um, what we're doing now is taking APR246, adding it to that backbone for patients with uh, AML with a mutation in P53. In addition, there is a very, very exciting clinical trial with a, or a number of clinical trials 
with a class of compounds called menin inhibitors. So menin inhibitors seem to be very, very effective in um, groups of patients who have a specific chromosome abnormality where they have what's called an MLL rearrangement. And what an MLL rearrangement is, is that a piece of chromosome 11 uh, breaks off and fuses with another chromosome abnormally. And what this menin inhibitor does is it seems to reverse the leukemia that results from that process. Um, these are early clinical trials, but they're open at a variety of sites in the United States um, and very, very exciting, open for patients with relapsed and refractory um, acute myeloid leukemia. I do want to say a few words. I won't talk too long about this because I know we, we want to get to the questions. Um, but I do want to say a few words, uh, as Dr. Pearl did, about uh, telemedicine and telehealth. And, and like he said, it really has um, allowed us to connect with our patients who may not be um, as close as we want them to be uh, to wherever we're practicing uh, medicine. I will make um, a couple of points that I think are, are really crucially important. The first is that um, all of us in all of the hospitals that we represent um, are very, very careful about who we're telling to come in to see us and who we think shouldn't come in to see us. Um, so if your doctor thinks that, you know, you really need to come in to get a physical examination or get something done in the hospital, everyone should really feel rest assured that um, the hospitals really are safe places now to come and the risk of getting COVID um, in one of our facilities or in one of our outpatient facilities is exceedingly low. Um, in addition, what telemedicine has allowed us to do is actually reach a larger group of patients. So you may know that um, up until the time of the coronavirus outbreak, um, if you were a doctor in New York State, you weren't allowed to, which is where I am, you weren't allowed to see a patient by video in another state because you didn't have a license to practice medicine in that other state. But with coronavirus, those rules have been lifted by the government. So now it actually gives patients um, who are far away from New York City or far away from Texas or far away from uh, Philadelphia, the opportunity to connect with a doctor at these um, centers that have real expertise in the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia via video link. And I would really encourage everyone, um, if they want to get a second opinion, you no longer have to sort of travel to another state. You can potentially do that um, via telemedicine um, to connect with an expert at, at um, a center um, that really has a reputation for excellence in the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia. And with that, I'm going to um, uh, end my comments and uh, happy to take any questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Stein. That was really outstanding and, and really uh, so very informative. And, and also in terms of the, the, you know, the, the, all the trials that are going on and all the new information that, well, the trials that went on, I guess with AML trials, but all the new things that are being looked at for people, it just offers people so many more options. So thank you. And I, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, definitely, I'm sure. Um, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to take questions. So please, everyone, start to prepare your questions. Um, and Crystal will soon tell you how to um, uh, post your questions, either on the chat feature on the website or actually on um, – or uh, on the telephone. So I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm an oncology social worker with Cancer Care. I'm Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. And I just wanted to go over with you a, a few of the very uh, number of comprehensive uh, programs and services that Cancer Care offers nationally to people throughout the country. 
So we offer um, both uh, practical and financial assistance. The financial assistance is restricted to people in the United States. However, if you're in another country and are having issues, you certainly can email us We have on our website, and we basically will be happy to try to, to connect you with someone where you are with the resources that you need. So um, that's something you should be aware of as well. Um, there are many resources throughout the country and world. Um, we also offer support to people, a chance to talk with one of our master's level trained oncology social workers about questions, concerns, issues that you may be confronting. Um, there are so many of them that um, to go into them, we could spend a whole hour. So, I, But there, are any, as many of you know, there are many things on your mind. And, and so our hope line or our website is a great place to just, you can call us um, on our hope line. Or you can, uh, for those of you who prefer the website, you can go to the website and post your question. And one of our oncology social workers will get back to you either on the phone if you call our hope line, or we'll get back to you online if you post a question um, on our website. Um, and, the, and the posting on the website is only visible to, of course, the staff at Cancer Care. Um, and so we also have a number of these education workshops, many of you have signed up for these before and been on a number of them. And we also have uh, our own publications. And there are many other organizations out there um, with resources for you. And I would be remiss not to mention the Leukemia Lymphoma Society as a, a remarkable resource for all of you to access information um, and just a number of organizations. So at the end of today's program, you will get an evaluation form. In the evaluation form, we do appreciate your feedback, of course, what you think of the program. But that evaluation form will also include all of the um, any resource or any link or um, anything that we provided for you to get information. So during the Q&A, you may ask a question and our speakers may give you um, information about that, but may also give you a resource to go to to get further information. So just to be aware of that. So now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to, again, try to take as many of your questions as possible. I'm going to turn this over to Crystal to explain to you how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star and then one. And so we have a question for our online participants. Um, so uh, this question is for um, Dr. Pearl. Do you have any advice for young people diagnosed with AML? Um, so two things. One is uh, you're not alone. And this is a disease that can strike people at any age. Um, so we see AML occurring even in, in young children, uh, all the way up to uh, people, you know, well into their 70s, 80s, and even 90s. Um, it is a disease that is more common in an older population, but we absolutely see it in younger people. We often give our most intensive therapies to young patients because they have so many years that we want them to get past their therapy and get on to. We really don't hold back both for the reason that we tend to see that patients who are younger can tolerate more intensive therapies, and also we want to make sure that we give this therapy sort of like Dr. Ravandi said, give your best therapy first, and hopefully we don't have to worry about additional therapies down the road. The downside to that is it can be quite intensive therapy, um, so be prepared for that. Expect it to be hard, um, but also expect that at some point we're going to give you therapy that I would hope 
works for your leukemia, make, puts it into remission, and hopefully keeps it in remission so we don't have to worry about it coming back at a later time. Our most intensive and curative therapies we often will reserve for our youngest patients, and those are the ones that uh, have the best chances of working for the long run. So swing for the fences, and let's hope that it goes well. In terms of supportive things, um, there are uh, certainly, you know, there, there are support groups that are out there for younger people who have cancer. Um, there are actually focuses within treatment groups. Uh, there's an interest in the leukemia community in what's called the AYA population, uh, which includes teenagers, young adults, and uh, this is, or adolescents and young adults um, is, is technically the name for that. And that includes people both with ALL and AML. And, and the reason there's been interest in this is that we recognize that this is a population that's at risk. Often as people move from teenage years into young adulthood, um, the, the independence that's needed to kind of, you know, ease into the adult years is often something that people are just testing out. They might be just living independently for the first time. And this is an area where they can get into trouble if, for one reason or another, they don't have as much guidance in terms of getting their therapy or as much support they might have gotten from their parents if they were younger. Um, so it's an area where we as, as a treatment team can really reach out to the patients and give them as much support as we can. So if there is an AYA program at, at the place where you're being treated, see the, what they have to offer for you because they may have more support for you. And then lastly, just remember that there's nothing that you did that, that caused this. In virtually all cases, uh, as Dr. Ravani mentioned, we, we, we don't find a reason for why leukemia happened. It's just a genetic accident, and, and more than anything, it's bad luck. For that reason, there's not a reason for you to say, well, I shouldn't be thinking about my health other than this. I can still get cancer at a young age. I shouldn't be doing the best for myself in terms of my health otherwise. Um, try to do the things that you can to stay healthy when your treatment is done, to live your life after your treatment is over as healthy as you can in hopes that um, you, can, you can live uh, cancer-free, leukemia-free, and a healthy time thereafter uh, as best you can going forward. Um, I would certainly recommend that you look at options of transplant as well, because often that's a therapy that we'll recommend for younger patients. And I don't think we're going to go into that more on this uh, venue, but I think that that's often a good therapy for younger patients because they can often get the greatest benefit from transplant in comparison to other populations. Excellent. Thank you. That's a wonderful response. I hope that's helpful to our participant. And please take this information back to treating healthcare team. It's wonderful information, thank you. And, and your team probably has all these resources there for you. So your healthcare team does consist of both your um, your the physician medical team themselves, but they also do have other um, members of the team. So they do have patient navigators, oncology nurses, oncology social workers, and they often can help you with finding those uh, groups. Um, for young adults, and we actually at Cancer Care also can help you with that as well, and many other organizations can. They're very important to have this connection um, and help. So thank you. Excellent uh, response, Dr. Um, Dr. Stein, and great question, um, Dr. Pearl. And our next question is for Dr. Stein, um, and this question is, um, so um, where can I find, for Dr. Stein, where can I find reliable information on AML and my treatment options besides my healthcare team? Sure, that's a, that's a great question, and it gets to the question of, which may underlie this question, um, when I Google acute myeloid leukemia, what's, what's, what link should I click on? Um, 
So I would recommend large organizations that um, that uh, have a, a reputation of excellence. So a great example of that is the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. I think they have um, a really wonderful website um, that can provide a lot of information that can be uh, helpful. Um, also, if you look at the National Institutes of Health website or the National Cancer Institute website, they have information. And then um, the Mayo Clinic actually has some very good information online. Those would be um, the three places that I would start, and they will likely have information that um, will help you out. Um, I think those are, are the are very reputable um, institutions, all of them. Um, and you know, one of the challenges when you're when you're not um, in the healthcare field and, and you're sort of searching something online is that you get a lot of information, but some of it might not be applicable to your particular situation. So I encourage my patients that if they are getting information, um, you know, from one of these sites I just mentioned, you know, to always bring it back and have a talk with me about what they found. Um, I can help them sort of sift through it and figure out what uh, might be helpful to them, what might not be completely relevant uh, to their case at the moment. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, very helpful um, information for everyone to have. And those, and we will provide all of those links for you in the evaluations. So you'll have them also at your fingertips as well, if you don't already. They're wonderful resources. Um, so the next question um, for Dr. Pearl is, um, so are there, let's see, can you rec recommend certain foods or diet during AML treatment? Um, there, certainly. Um, I, I think one thing to remember as you're looking at diet is this is probably not a good time to be looking for trying to change your weight if that's something that had been a long-term goal of yours. The most important thing is to get through your therapy fit and to get through your, your therapy well. Often the, the leukemia itself can cause changes in appetite or the therapy can cause changes in appetite. So. Um, there can be weight loss associated with therapy that's unintentional, um, and that's that. You know, the the more important thing here is just don't try to radically change your diet in a way that might keep you from eating things that you want or keeping you getting your sustenance. So just remember that as you go forward. There's a lot of challenges of the therapy, and you don't want to fall behind. You need enough calories to uh, to get through your therapy and stay strong. Um, with that in mind, however, I would say that you know certainly uh, while you're getting therapy. Um, it, it, it can be helpful to find therapies that are easy on your stomach if nausea is an issue for you. Um, and so trying to avoid things that have too much spice to them or things that might cause changes in bowel habits um, might be a good plan for you. But I often recommend to my patients that they make sure that they've got a certain amount of comfort food, things that they like to eat, things that they enjoy, because often taste buds get thrown off by chemotherapy. And just making sure they're getting enough food in is, is important uh, for them to make sure they get through and get through strong. Um, there's not a specific diet that I would say works better in terms of making your treatment better, nor is there a, a real role uh, carved out in terms of should you take extra vitamins or supplements to enhance the effectiveness of your treatment. Um, with certain kinds of leukemia therapy, we actually give medicines that antagonize the effect of vitamins. And so ask your doctor whether that's going to be an issue if you're taking medicines that might be targeting certain vitamin metabolism that the leukemia hijacks and tries to use for its sustenance. 
Um, I generally don't have a problem with my patients taking vitamins as long as they're not taking excess supplements. I have had patients get into trouble with taking, you know, kind of mega doses of vitamins that had interfered with other uh, absorption of either essential uh, uh, vitamins that they, they should be taking in with the exception uh, the example being uh, too much zinc can cause copper uh, absorption problems. Um, so I would certainly say any anything that you're going to do run by your physician or, or nurse practitioner or treatment team to make sure that that's not going to cause a problem. Um, but otherwise, I generally say take you know make sure you're getting a healthy diet in in terms of a variety of different foods. We don't have restrictions in terms of what to eat as to you're not allowed to eat this, that, or the other thing other than foods that would be likely to give you a risk of uh, food poisoning. So undercooked meats, uh, raw eggs, raw shellfish, or undercooked shellfish, these are real risks for patients getting leukemia therapy because foodborne illness can be a major uh, source of patients getting quite ill. So if, you, if you're eating meats, make sure that they're thoroughly cooked. If you're eating uh, vegetables, make sure they're washed before you, you eat them. Um, Anything that can get moldy very easily or that you have to worry about, is, is this off, you should probably stay away from. I generally tell my patients not to have uh, berries for that reason. Um, but outside of that, I don't have a very strong preference in terms of, uh, you know, in the old days, we would do a neutropenic diet that was very restrictive. We've eased up on those restrictions quite a bit of late because I think, in general, they, they largely led to patients not eating enough and not getting enough of a variety, and that probably wasn't productive. Excellent. So basically, we want pe- you want people to eat. That's really what's important. And uh, I do, and I, and I don't want them to get foodborne illness is the main thing. So you know, if you're going to be handling poultry, wash your hands. If you're eating eggs, make sure they're cooked well. Um, ground beef has to be well cooked. Um, outside of that, I think you can generally feel pretty comfortable eating what you enjoy eating, as long as you're getting enough calories that you're not losing weight unintentionally. Thank you. Thanks. Excellent. It's a great questions and wonderful responses. So thank you. And for Dr. Stein, this will be our last question. Are the treatment options the same for all subtypes of AML? Uh, so the answer is not necessarily. Um, so it, it, as I mentioned in my earlier remarks, um, the backbones of treatment tend to be the same, but we often add on additional medications um, that might help with a particular subset of AML. So the best example of this is patients with a mutation in FLT3 or FLT3. At the time of diagnosis, if it's a patient uh, who is going to get sort of our traditional induction chemotherapy in the hospital, um, we add on a targeted FLT3 inhibitor called mitostorin. And there are a variety of clinical trials that are being done to see whether other FLT3 inhibitors may be um, better than than mitostorin as the drug that gets added on. Um, Similarly, um, in a patient who uh, might be a little bit older, who isn't going to get induction chemotherapy and has an IDH1 mutation, um, that patient uh, might get the combination of azocytidine and venetoclax. Um, the IDH1 inhibitor is uh, approved for newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia in patients with IDH1 mutations. So it may be that that's a, that's a good option for, for a particular patient. So I think that the overall message is that, you know, 10 years ago or 7 to 10 years ago, really everyone with AML got treated the same way. But we've really entered a new era 
where there are a wide variety of treatment options and the treatment option that's best for you may not be best for someone else. Excellent. Wow, this has been an extraordinary call. I want to thank our speakers, really uh, just phenomenal call, I have to say. Lots of wonderful information provided. I also want to thank our participants for asking such really wonderful questions online. Really, your questions help to enhance the program and allow there be a bit of a dialogue between you and our speakers. And we, um, we this is a one-hour program, and I know there are many more questions in queue, but we um, we had said this would be one hour. So I'm going to try to wrap this up at this point. Um, I want to thank all of you, first of all, for being on the call today, our speakers and our participants. The wonderful um, interplay between all of you is so terrific. Um, I also want to recognize that um, if you asked a question today or if you um, heard a question asked and made you think of another question, we want you to take all that information back to your treating healthcare team. That's really important because they know the most about you clearly. They, they really know, you know, they know about you. They know they have all the information so you can take the information back to them. We also know that you do like to go to other sites to get information. And our speakers have been very specific about the importance of your going to credible websites for information. Credible resources, some have websites and 800 numbers, and depending where you are in the country and world, they're wonderful resources for you. And we, you've heard the Leukemia Lymphoma Society mentioned a number of times. It's a very credible resource. Mayo Clinic, as I mentioned, um, and uh, the National Cancer Institute. You'll be getting all that information, of course, in your evaluations, but still, I want to stress that. Um, we want you to go to sites that are very uh, well-respected sites, and we will provide those information to you um, on your evaluation as well as on today's program. However, for those of you who actually um, also wish to pursue services from cancer care, whether it be our practical or financial assistance or um, our support services, you know, please do contact our staff at Cancer Care to chance to talk to our oncology social workers about our range of services that we offer. Perhaps most importantly today in this era of, um, you know, really a bit of we have more social isolation than we've had before just really because of COVID-19. And so people feel alone and they also feel perhaps more alone. Sometimes having AML, one feels alone and then of course having, and then with uh, this context. So it's normal to feel alone. There's no question about that. So that is normal. However, we do want you to know that there's a lot of resources out there that you can call for assistance whether it be help with um, any other issues that you're struggling with. Your healthcare team is a good start, but then all of the resources um, that we've mentioned today, many of them, some of these resources have uh, call centers that go on all day, and so you can call places at you know, different times of the day depending where you are, and you also can visit their websites and post a question. So with that being said, I want to thank you all very much for your participation today. And please know that you're now part of a very large community of support in addition to your healthcare team. Your healthcare team, of course, will be determining your, your actual medical care. But in terms of those other aspects of your care and concerns, that team is terrific, but also there are a lot of resources that you can um, access. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.